the Apostle John is, is dealing, as we've been seeing, as we've been going through this book, he's been dealing with these, um, these false teachers that have infiltrated or, or had the threat of pers- or infiltrating or having influence on these believers here. And uh, the heresy that they're bringing out is Gnosticism, which believes that all physical matter is wicked. So it doesn't matter how I live with my life as a Christian. My body doesn't represent who I am. So they're engaged in all this wickedness. And he's trying to break through a lot of that deception that these believers could uh, be engaged in because of the lies of these false teachers. He's also breaking through deception for them and for us about how our walk, what it's supposed to look like and what it really means to be a true disciple or to be in the truth. So he's been saying a lot of words like, if we say this, you know, if we say this, or if anyone practices this, or if anyone hates his brother, he's not in the truth. All these things that are supposed to break through all the deception that's there. The worst kind of deception is self-deception. And so we need God's word to break through all of that because it pierces through everything and gets to our hearts and judges the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And so we, we need that desperately. So he's been getting into all of those things, and he's been giving us some specific things that break through deception and, and, and uh, validate our faith and validate that we are Christians and we're believers. And he's mentioned that if we walk in the light, then we can have fellowship with one another. We can have fellowship with him. He says that if we confess our sins to the Lord, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a sign of a disciple. Disciples do that. (laughs) They recognize that they're a sinner every day and they fall short and they confess their sins to God and he cleanses them from all unrighteousness. Also that if we obey God, we're proving that we're in the truth. And part of that is not loving the world or the things in the world in terms of what is appealing to our sinful nature. You know, so he's gone over that. And then he, he's also gone over to reject false teachers. That's a sign of a, of an, of a disciple. Someone that tests uh, people to see if what they're saying is true or not and rejects false teachers. So he said all those things protect you against self-deception and all those things validate that you're a true disciple if you're engaged in, in, in those things. And of course, all of us are growing in those things. It's not, none of us have arrived. Can I get an amen? There you go. There we go. None of us have arrived, so we're all growing. And it's encouraging that he's patient with us and he's gracious with us and he loves to help us along in our growth. So he begins in verse 18. He says, little children, it is the last hour. And so there was a last hour then that was almost 2,000 years ago. So it's really the last hour now. Um, you know, it's it's been about an hour. Like you know, the lens crafters or you know the the, the remember we had the um, the thing the places that would do the twenty four hour photo and that was a big deal. You know, you bring your film in and twenty four hours later they got it done. You know, and now we're like we have a phone that has everything right there is instantly. You know, but he says this is the last. Hour. And so, as we've seen, we saw this in Peter when we went through that whole book, that God measures time differently. A day is a thousand years to him, so an hour is, you know, a few hundred years, I don't know. It'd divide 24 into a thousand, I guess. Um, I'm not a math guy. Do you remember those little calculators that would look like an owl, and, they, and they, they helped you get the answers to your problems? I, wish, I always wish I had one of those, but I never could have one, so that would have helped me with math. Wish I would have had one now. Uh, so he says, is the last hour, little children, and he, he's, Jesus has said in the um, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, 
that there are definitely birth pangs. There are, be- there are signs that we should be looking towards related to Jesus' second coming in terms of him coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And so we're starting to see some of those now. And as Pastor Chuck like, used to say a lot, you know, if you see the signs of, of, of Christmas but before Thanksgiving, how much closer is Thanksgiving? <laughs> you know, and so we're seeing the signs of this, the second coming, most things. So how much closer is the rapture that happens seven years before that happens? So he's saying this is, this is happening. And one of the signs that it's the last days is, is ant, these antichrists coming on the scene. And he continues in verse 1 and says, And as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last Hour. So he says the Antichrist, the Antichrist, notice the capital A there. There is an Antichrist coming. And that man is a very specific man laid out in Scripture. He's called many things. We're going to get into it when we get into Revelation. But he's called the, law, the man of sin. He's called the beast. He's called a lot of different designations. We usually refer to him as the Antichrist. So we know that he is coming, and, and we're not looking for him. Some people have asked me over the years, you know, who do you think's the Antichrist? Do you think it's this guy? Do you think it's this guy? Do you, th- you know, what about him? You know, I looked really close into his eyes, and I think I saw 666. And, you know, I mean, all this crazy stuff that's out there. And the thing is, is that we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for the Lord. That's who we're supposed to be focusing on. Not the identi- identity of the Antichrist. I don't believe we're going to be here for the seven-year tribulation. So we shouldn't be looking for the Antichrist because the influence of the Holy Spirit in the church is restraining him from coming on the scene. We're told that in Thessalonians. So I don't believe I'm ever going to see him in this world anyway. may see him from above or whatever or come be there at the end of the seven-year tribulation when Jesus comes back and his saints are trailing him and Jesus pierces through him with the sword that comes out of his mouth, his word. So I may see him then, but I'm, I don't, I'm not going to see him before that. So I'm not concerned about it. But he says he is coming, but he says even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So there's something about these little Antichrists, small a Antichrists, that designate that we are in the last hour. We're in the last time before God wraps everything up. And so these people have a certain perspective. They're coming from a specific um, vantage point related to what they say about the Lord Jesus. And so the, the open, you know, the ones that reject Christ, they're real open and, and obvious to us to see. But the ones that are a little bit more, you know, behind the scenes undermining Christ and undermining the things of the Lord and casting doubt on his word, they do it a little bit more covertly. And those are a little bit harder to, to, to see. And so John wants them to know is that anyone that's denying that Jesus, he's going to say it later in the book, came in the flesh, is the spirit of Antichrist. So anyone that's denying that God came in human flesh is, is, is in, walking in the spirit of Antichrist. He's a little Antichrist, a little against Christ. That's what the word means. And so that comes in many different forms. Denying that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. People love to talk about Jesus being a great moral teacher. You know, and some, usually on the way to church with me and my kids, I, I do a little, like a little apologetic, you know, defense of the Christian faith lesson with them and quiz them and all that and everything. And they, they enjoy it most of the time when they're awake, you know, hear this, huh, what, you know, in the back seat sometimes. 
Like, Sandy, stop it. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, no, but that we go over these things. And one of the things we talked about this morning on the way to church is that people say that Jesus is a great moral teacher. And, and C.S. Lewis made this famous, uh, you know, that, but, but great moral teachers and prophets don't claim to be God when they're not God. So that's a problem. You don't say you're a good moral teacher or a prophet if you claim to be God when you're not. And Jesus claimed to be God. So it's a package deal. Either he's God in human flesh and a great moral teacher and all those things all at once, or he's none of those things. And so we don't, he hasn't given us that option to say, oh, yeah, he's a great teacher and all that. Well, he claimed to be God. What if I claim to be God? He'd put me in a padded cell, probably, you know. So we don't respect people that claim to be God when they're not. So he says, these antichrists have come, and it's an evidence that we're in the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that none of them were of us. So he's speaking of something uh, very specific. There was leaders within that group there that were among the apostles, among the leaders and so forth. But yet they went out and started, you know, speaking heresy and teaching heresy. So John's saying that people will be among us that will go and leave and you know, become apostate or whatever, or teach false things they never knew the Lord or whatever. And we have to know that they can come out from among us. It's not, we shouldn't be surprised by that. If someone leaves here and starts going off the deep end and start teaching a bunch of crazy things and heresy and all that, that's nothing new. The Apostle John says that happened with them. And so the fact that they went out from them and did that is an evidence that they're, they're little antichrist there. So he's, he's not saying that when people are sent out from a church to go plant a church or when God moves someone to another place or whatever, that they're a little antichrist. People have used that word, this, this verse before. I don't, how many of you ever heard that in a church, in your experience? If they were of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. They left our church. And so that shows that they're completely you know, apostates or whatever. They've used this verse to show that people have, that if they leave, people leave your church, then they're apostates. <laughs> it's not what he's talking about. Not people, not believers leaving a fellowship to go to another one or whatever. It's talking about people that are teaching heresy that go out. They try to get an audience within a church. Then when they're kicked out because of teaching bad doctrine, and trying to gain disciples for themselves, then they go out and do it out there. And, and John is saying that's an evidence that they, that they were never one of us there. And so um, I remember when I left a church at one point, getting ready to leave a church, and there were a lot of people leaving at that time because there was bad teaching going on. Um, the pastor said, God's purifying this church. And he's taken out all the dross and all the, un, the, the, the impurities of the church. And he's making us better. Making, all these people are leaving and, and all that. And, and so what did that do? It basically said if you leave, then you're going to be considered one of the impurities. So it's just a complete manipulation technique. And I'm like, okay, I'm gone. See, you know, um, you know God's not in that. He's not behind that or whatever. And, and, and so, uh, but there is people that legitimately... Um, carry away disciples for themselves and split churches and teach false things and it's not healthy. Now notice he gives a couple of protections to us from false teachers. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and know all things. Now in some circles in the body of Christ, they talk a lot about the anointing. I'm anointed. You know, they, they have this way that they say it and you know, I'm, don't touch God's anointed. You know, they're going to have bears come and destroy 
eat you up, you know, like in the Old Testament, if you criticize me because I'm God's anointed and how dare you question me and all, it's a bunch of baloney. Here it says that we all have an anointing from the Lord. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Because in the Old Testament, what was anointing? They would anoint a king. They would pour oil over their head and they would anoint a king. And, and in, even in the New Testament, in the culture there, when you would welcome someone in your house, you wouldn't give them necessarily something to drink like we do or something like that. You would pour oil over their head. And you would show, because it was refreshing in that there was no air conditioning and so forth. It would, it would cool you and so forth. And then everybody would know after you left that home that you had been, that someone really appreciated you coming over their house and loved on you. It was a great thing. So, but it's a symbol. The oil is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. That's why we anoint people with oil. Not that there's anything magic about the oil, but it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, you have an anointing from the Holy One. These false teachers are claiming they have anointing and they have this power from, from God and the Spirit and they're walking in the supernatural and, and you don't know anything, they're saying. We, you need us to teach you because if we don't teach you, you're not going to have the deeper things of the Lord and the secret things that, that, that your church really isn't getting that deep into, you know, and they, they work that angles that way and the perimeter of it and then they, they take people aside and he's saying, no, you have an anointing from the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit. You know all things. Now, don't let that go to your head there at the end of verse 20. You can't say, honey, the Bible says I know all things. And so you can't teach me anything. You can't say that. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that the, the, all the truth of Christianity, the, the essence of the gospel, the essence of who Christ is, all those things have been taught to you, taught, uh, those things have been taught to you by the Spirit of God, and you know those things. So the, the essential things that make Christianity Christianity, Jesus coming in the flesh as the Messiah, Jesus being God in human flesh, you know instinctively, supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit that those things are true. So any false teacher that comes in and denies that, you, you already know by the Spirit that those things are false. And, and so... That's very important for us to see because um, we have that understanding, and and we're not going to be um, we're not going to be fooled. Now he says in verse twenty one, "I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth." So again, he's encouraging them in verse twenty, saying that you're anointing, you have an anointing from the Holy One. You know all things. You know again all the information against this false teaching that they're bringing. And he goes, I'm not writing you because you don't know the truth. I'm writing to you because you know it already. You have this understanding. You have this anointing. You know the, 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 these truths about Jesus being God in human flesh and coming as the Messiah. And, and, and that no lie that is of the truth. So, and, and so you're not living in a lie. You're walking in the light. You're walking in truth. He's encouraging them. And I love how God does that. Where he just comes in and says, you're of the truth. You're in the truth. God, God is leading your life. You're, you're, we're right where you're supposed to be. You know what you're supposed to know related to your walk with the Lord. Yes, you're growing and you're learning more things, but you have a great foundation. And so I love it that he, that he does that. And then it shows us that this truth of the Spirit, it, it's given to us because he's inside of us. And he's the one that ultimately teaches us. Because it's not talking about you have no need that anyone teach you. Like you, we don't need human teachers because God has, gives a gift of teaching. 
And pastor teachers are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And part of that is teaching the Bible. So we do have need of a man teaching us. But he's saying that ultimately what what goes on when a man teaches you, if he's teaching you the truth, the spirit inside of you, the anointing that you already have, it, it confirms that. And it says, it, he says to us, yes, that's true, what he, that teacher is saying to you. And, and you know that it rings true in your heart and in your mind. And so that's, that's an incredible encouragement to us because he shows us the truth. He confirms the truth in us. But also it get, we do have the responsibility to, uh, to engage in learning more and more truth as well. It's a, there's a, a, a partnership, so to speak, where the Holy Spirit reveals things to us, he confirms things to us, and all of that. But then as we study, as we are students of the Word, then he further teaches us. And then times where we need to know those truths at very critical times, he comes in and reminds us and brings those things to our remembrance. And so it's very important that we understand the truth. You know, when we understand revelation, we don't recognize always how much of a miracle that is. When Peter said to the Lord Jesus, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he said, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who's in heaven, he's communicating to Peter and everybody else of the privilege of having God reveal something to us. And we get so used to God revealing truth to us, we can take it for granted sometimes. And realize that our capacity as believers to compare spiritual things with spiritual things, as Paul mentioned, is a supernatural thing. Because he says unbelievers can't do it. They don't have the receiver, so to speak, to tune in to the radio waves and to get the spiritual understanding that we have all the time. It also tells us that we're supposed to not trust any man so much or any teacher so much that we don't test what they say by Scripture. No one, you should never give anybody that much leeway where you just believe just things that they say because they're a teacher or they're in a position of of leadership or something. Don't ever do that with anybody, myself included. It's a protection for you, just like in Acts chapter 17, when the Bereans tested what the Apostle Paul said by the scriptures daily to confirm that what he was saying, what he was teaching them was actually true. And he didn't, he wasn't threatened by it. See, unhealthy teachers are threatened by that. How dare you test what I say? I've, heard, I've had him tell me that. How dare you test what I say? I've been in ministry for this long, and I've, I'm here and you're here, and, and, you know, and you should trust what I know. Don't give anybody that. Paul wasn't threatened by that. He commended them for that. And so don't give anybody that much uh, leeway. Test everything. If you, if the most wonderful thing to say and ask somebody is, you got a verse for that. Because people want to put all this teaching on us. They want to have this binding on the body of Christ, their preference or their particular little angle that they see things in, and and they want to make that binding on us. And sometimes when you say, well, you got a verse for that, oh, well, yeah. And and sometimes it's in the Old Testament or something that isn't reinforced in the New Testament or something, and we have to be very careful about that. And that's how we can be deceived if we're not being careful. You know, I say things that make you look down or encourage you to look down at your, at your Bible. I say notice. I say look with me. I say we see here in verse whatever. That's all on purpose because I want your head to go down. I want you to see in the passage for yourself where I'm getting what I'm saying to you because I only have authority if it's based in Scripture. I have nothing to say to anybody. I have no wisdom apart from Scripture. And so it's very important that we 
study it, we know it, we hold people accountable to it, and we test everything by Scripture. Then he says in verse 22, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Again, remember I said at the beginning when we first started this book, John is so blunt. He's just so clear. Just breaks through all the garbage. And he just says, he who is a liar denies Jesus is the Christ. Who denies that Jesus is the Christ? What is the Christ? Christ means anointed one. It means the promised Messiah. So anyone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, who's setting themselves up as an authority on spiritual things, God himself, by the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John here, says he is a liar. No matter what title they have, no matter how educated they are, they're a liar. And, And so we can know that. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. And, and we should be bold in proclaiming that. And anyone that contradicts that, we shouldn't trust them as a, as a, as a safe guide. And then he says he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And he's going to get into that. He says in verse 23, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So here it's very clear. We get to see right from God himself that it's a package deal. And so many people want to claim the Father, but they do not want to claim the Son. And Jesus says, it's, you can't. You can't. It's, either, it's either both or none. So, oh, I know the Father. I believe in God. I'm not sure about Jesus. I think he's a great moral teacher. He's a great example. He's a prophet. Well, good teachers and prophets don't claim to be God when they're not. That's your first problem. <laughs> Secondly, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way to the Father. I'm the door. You can't go another way. If you go another way, anyone who goes another way is a thief and a robber. There's one way into that uh, relationship, and we have to accept that. And so anyone that says, oh, I believe in the Father, and you know, I'm spiritual, and I know the deep things of, of God or whatever, but I don't accept that Jesus came and, uh, you know, it's God in human flesh. You know, I believe he was created, you know, or uh, I, be- I don't believe he was the Messiah or whatever it is. They're, event- they're an ant- a little antichrist. You need to tell them, you need to get a little plaque for your desk, a little antichrist department, you know, because you're running it in, in, in your office, because that's not true. God, Jesus is the Messiah. He is, you have to believe in him and trust in him, or you don't honor the Father. And that's what Jesus said. In fact, you said that in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus said, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Clear as day, right there. So we have to recognize you have to go through the Son. And people get mad about that. They get offended. Well, how come I just can't go right to the Father? Because God said you can't just go to the Father. He gets to decide how we get to the Father. I mean, don't you get to decide how you, you know, people come to, 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 into a relationship with you? You can't be on their terms. It's on your terms. God's the same way. Or what country, I give this question to people before, what country doesn't have the right to have their own immigration policy and be able to come into that country and become a citizen how they choose? 
What if I said to Russia, I want to become a citizen of Russia, and I don't care how you say I'm supposed to come and become a citizen. I get to decide. And there has to be many ways, by the way. And if there isn't many ways to become a citizen of Russia, I'm going to be offended. And Russia says, no, we get to decide how you come to be a citizen of Russia. And we say there's one way to become a citizen in Russia. And it doesn't matter if you are upset about it or not. That would be foolish. So God gets to set his own immigration policy, how we get to immigrate to heaven and immigrate into the kingdom of God. There's one way, and he has the right to do it. Verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So he says, therefore, let that abide. He's been using this word abide a lot. We've seen that as we start going through the book. And it means to dwell very deeply, to settle down in something, and to make your home in something. To, you know, when you, when you go into a hotel room, usually you like to unpack. And what do you say? I just want to settle in, right? You get comfortable. You unpack things. You put them right where they're supposed to be. And, or when you move into a new home, many times you don't feel comfortable there until everything's unpacked and until all these, you know, boxes are taken care of, I just don't feel settled. That's the picture. And Jesus said, if you, he said to abide in me. And if you, if you abide in me, then you'll bear, I'll bear much fruit through your life. So he says, therefore, let that truth, the truth that if you accept the son, you accept the father and everything that Jesus is, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning, because in the beginning, they heard the truth about Jesus. That he is the Messiah, that he is God in human flesh, that the gospel and all those things, they hurt all of that. Let that dwell in you. In other words, don't believe this false teaching that denies these things. Let the truth of what you heard from the very beginning about who Jesus is and how to access the Father, let all of that rest and settle in you. But he says, if, notice the word if there in verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So he's saying, let the truths of those things stay in you. Let the truths of who Jesus is remain in you. Don't believe this heresy. Verse 25. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Now we could just pass over this, but I don't want to do that. It's not just a little verse here that just adds a nice point and rounds out the chapter. Every jot and tittle is not going to pass away. Every word's inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And he says, and this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. We need to let that freshly wash over our heart. He's promised us eternal life. Later, John's going to say, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Present tense. So he's promised. See, the thing is, eternal life starts now. It's not related, merely related to location that someday I'm going to go from this earth to heaven. And when I make that transfer, when I make that destination, when I travel that distance, you know, then I'll have eternal life. It's a quality of life. It's not necessarily talking about time. It's talking about a quality. And so we need to walk around as believers in him and as disciples already enjoying eternal life because it started already. The moment we received Christ, we received eternal life. It started then. And, and it just is going to continue in, in, as we get our new bodies about what he's going to speak in a moment. So we, have, we need to enjoy eternal life right now. And you're like, well, I got the enemy out there. I got my sinful nature. It seems like, you know, this is hard to enjoy. But 
it's part of the, the process of making us more Christ-like and, and it's shaping our character and who we are. And, and there's a virtue in being an overcomer. We talked a lot about that or studied a lot at the retreat this weekend about being an overcomer. He talks to those churches in Revelation. He who overcomes, I will let him be dressed in or, or he will have white robes and speaking of our new body and our righteousness there and all of that. And he wants to encourage us to overcome. We can forget that he has rewards on the other side of this difficult life, but he does. And he has all the grace and the power for us to live this life as we wait for the culmination or the fruition of getting our new bodies and and having eternal life in the sense of being in his physical presence. So a wonderful truth there. Verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Now this is the third reason that he's written the book. We've already covered the first two. and He has one more coming after this. But this is the third time he said, these things I have written to you. And he says, concerning those who try to deceive you. There's always this battle that we're fighting to not be deceived. And there's a deception that goes on in our hearts and our minds at times that there isn't that battle. But part of the deception that we can suffer through sometimes is that there's no battle for, you know, related to us being deceived. But there is. And you don't know when you're deceived. That's kind of the point. You know, you don't know it. Well, I would know if I was deceived. No, you wouldn't, because if you were deceived, you wouldn't know it. That's what deception is, right? You need other things from without to tell you that, and within by the Spirit, but you need His Word, you need other God's people. And so he says, we don't want you to be deceived. And so they're at risk of being deceived related to who Jesus is, how we live our lives, and our lives don't represent holiness. It's okay because it doesn't fully represent us. That's what the Gnostics taught. But in anything... God has not called us to be deceived. And that's why we need to value other believers that are willing to tell us the truth about ourselves when the things aren't lining up. And one of the hardest things to do is to tell someone what they need to hear sometimes. And we can forget that people pay a price to do that. But we need to have an environment as a family here where we can share anything with anybody else and they receive that as love, an expression of love, even if later on they after prayer and all that, they, they, they don't agree with that, that, with that word. At least they know as an expression of love. So very important for us to do that. Verse 27. But the anointing which you have received, notice that's past tense, received from him abides in you. There's our word again. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you and concerning all things and is true and is not a lie and just as... It has taught you, you will abide in him. So he says this anointing that you've received, past tense, we've received this anointing from the Spirit. We have the Spirit indwelling us, being our teacher, being our guide, being our helper. Jesus said, I won't leave you as orphans. I will send another comforter or another counselor to you. And that word another means another of the same kind, right? So he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, I won't send the helper to you. So we've received this anointing there, and it abides, it abides in us. It lives inside of us. And so he says, because of that, ultimately when you learn something, you're not learning it from a man. Anything that's true, anything from God that someone teaches you is ultimately from the Holy Spirit. And, t- and the Holy Spirit teaches you and illuminates your heart to those truths. I never pray that, the, that, the, that, that God's word would be anointed. Because it already is anointed. 
What I pray is that our ears would be anointed to what he says and our hearts would be anointed. It's already powerful. I never pray that God's word will be powerful. It already is powerful. Like Spurgeon said, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to defend a lion. You just let the lion loose, (laughs) you know. So uh, we we have to recognize that it's powerful. God's word is powerful, and 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 the Spirit inside of us, He teaches us and He illuminates things, and we can depend upon that. These teachers are saying you need us to give you the deeper things, and He's saying no, you just have the Spirit, and that's that's enough. <laughs> but He says if He teaches you, and it's not a lie, and it's true, and all these things, if all those things are true, and they are, then notice the last uh, few words of verse twenty-seven: you will abide in Him. So he's saying, because the Spirit is in you, because the Spirit is teaching you, he's guiding you towards an end, and he's living inside of you, and he's working in your life and bringing you to uh, maturity. And so you can have confidence in the Spirit's capacity to work in your life and through your life and bring you to where God's leading you. It's beautiful. Verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So he says, this anointing, he teaches, this anointing from the Spirit, he teaches you, and, and he will abide in, I mean, um, you will abide in him, but then he tells him, now you abide in him. So it's, it's interesting. In verse 27, he says, you will abide in him. So he's doing a work, but also in verse 28, you need to do something. You need to abide in him. We can't, we can't, Pray that God makes us abide in him. He's told us to do that. And so we need to rest in him and make our home with, within him. And then he gives us this great thing to focus on. He says, and when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You know, the Bible says so much about that moment when we see Jesus and we meet him, whether it be when we die and go to be with him or at the rapture of the church or whatever, that there's 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 something very powerful going on in that moment when we see him face to face. Paul talks about it in different ways. He says, I want to present you as a chaste virgin so that when you meet your groom, then it'll be a blessing to him. And he even says at one point so that we won't be ashamed. There's so much that he says about that moment. Jesus talks about it at the moment of the rapture in First Thessalonians chapter 4. When the trumpets sound and all that that goes on in heaven, he wants us to know how much it means to him that of him meeting us in the air. I mean, it means a lot for us to meet him in the air, but it means a lot to him. Remember, he's a, he's a groom. We're his bride. He's waiting to, to be physically united with us. And, and, and that's supposed to produce something in our lives that's wonderful. So we're going to see him. So he says, we want, he wants us to have confidence. Notice that word confidence there. That we may have confidence and not be ashamed at him at his coming. There'll be some Christians that are ashamed at his coming because of what they're engaged in. They'll be in the middle of something. You, we don't want to be in the middle of willful disobedience when he comes. We want to be honoring him. We want to be watching and waiting and working and being faithful about his business. When he comes, he finds us being faithful stewards. He talks about it in a parable. So he wants us to, to, to not be ashamed, not be engaged in sin and being faithful when he comes. And part of that is, is abiding in him. Not just being religious and going through motions, but actually walking with him. All of this is about walking with God. It's not about going through motions or being religious. 
He wants our hearts and he wants to walk with us. He wants that fellowship with us about which John spoke in chapter 1. Verse 29. If, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, the word know is our word gnosko, the knowledge by experience. So he says, if you know by experience that he is righteous, and don't we? That we've walked with him, we know that he's righteous because he's always dealing with us to be more righteous. He wouldn't be doing that if he wasn't righteous. His judgments are perfect. He's holy. There's nothing in him. There's no darkness in him. We've already seen that in the book. And he says, if you know him by experience, you know that he is righteous, then you know that everyone who practices, notice the word practices, righteousness is born of him everyone that walks with him in righteousness and we see a different kind of life we can know that person is is of of him and has been born of god and so he says that should be an encouragement because these false teachers were not doing that they weren't practicing righteousness so he wants them to recognize them they're not doing that church he's saying that to them these guys aren't doing that they're not so they're not born of him Now he gets to chapter 3. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. We don't use the word behold a lot, but it it means to carefully consider. Carefully consider. When you're giving an ultimatum to your kids about, if you do that again, (laughs) you're going to get in trouble. Behold. You do that again, you're going to get in trouble. Let's carefully consider something. He says, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Notice past tense, bestowed. On us that we should be called children of God. We would never designate ourselves as children of God. We know ourselves. We know how sinful we are. And he's saying it is just carefully consider the expression of love that it is when God the Father has lavished upon us the designation of children of God. He cannot associate with us any closer than he already has as adopted children. We're not children by nature. There's nothing, no way that could ever happen. But we're adopted children, and he wants us to call him Daddy, Abba Father. That intimacy is so precious to him, far more precious than it is to us. So we should worship him as a result of that. That is, that he's shown that amazing expression of love. And he continues, Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. We shouldn't be surprised that it doesn't understand us or get us or relate to us because it didn't to him. They didn't understand him. He wasn't of this world. He was victorious over this world. And, and so the fact that they don't understand us, they don't get us, they don't know us, um, is, a, is an evidence that we're in him because they didn't, know him either beloved verse 2 now we are children of god and it has not been revealed what we shall be but we know when that when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is so as this is an expression of love that he tells him this in verse 2 he starts it with beloved beloved now we are children of god not then that we're children of god then too but it starts now eternal life starts now now we are children of god and, but he was, there's still a mystery associated with it. We don't know exactly what, how we, our bodies will be. Anyone that claims to know everything about that is not telling the truth because the Bible is limited in that way. But one thing he does say, which is enough, <laughs> is he says, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
You know, in Luke chapter 24, subsequent to Jesus raising from the dead, he said, spirit, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone, as you see I have. And he took some fish and he ate and he showed them it wasn't a spirit. See, that's what these Gnostics were teaching. He came as a spirit. But he's, no, you won't just be a spirit. You're going to be a physical body. We're going to get a physical body. And I don't know if you've ever wondered what that's going to be like. But, you know, Jesus went through walls. He just disappeared and appeared. He ate. You know, he said at the Last Supper, I won't take, partake of this till in heaven, so there's food. It, amen. Is there, yeah, there we go. It's food. We eat and all that. We get to enjoy all of those things. We're not limited by location. I mean, there's a lot that he's told us about how our bodies are going to be. And, and so when we see him, we will un- fully understand that. As those of us that go in the rapture, we're going to get our new bodies at that very instant. And then when we, if we die now, as far as our understanding of time, it'll probably be the same thing. When we die right now, it'll probably be the time of the rapture. You know, because we're, not, we're outside of time at that point. So I don't know how he's going to do all of it, but I know it's going to be good. And he says the result of it, of that expectation of seeing him face to face and being changed... There's an there's a incredible implication to that in verse 3. He says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. When you think at any moment you could see him, and you're going to be like him. And all of that is a result of this amazing love that's been bestowed upon us. He's called us children of God and adopted us into his family. That want, makes us want to be holy and more like him as a result of that. It purifies us. It's supposed to have that effect on our lives because he can come back at any moment. But what's often overlooked is the end of verse 3. Just as he is pure. He's the standard. No other man's standard of holiness. The extent to which we should be growing in holiness is, is we should be aiming at his standard of purity, which is beautiful. Jesus is the perfect picture of holiness. There's no greater definition than the Lord Jesus. So we should want to be growing in our relationship with him to be more like Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for changing us. Thank you for this love that you bestowed upon us, that you've called us children of God. Thank you that you call us to be intimate with you and call you daddy. Thank you, Jesus, that you allowed the apostle John to lay back and put his head on your chest and to hear you breathe and to maybe even hear your heartbeat. Lord, that's the intimacy that you've called us to. And I pray that every one of us in our, in our fellowship, Lord, would grow in that intimacy with you and that we would have an increasing, increasingly um, or a, a, just a hatred for wickedness and, and unrighteousness and we'd want to be more pleasing to you in our thoughts and our actions and our motives, why we do things, that we would weigh, weigh out our time and our gifts, and our finances, and everything, that all of it would just be completely submitted to you, and that you would be pleased with our lives, Lord. We want to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, Lord. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So just continue to work these verses in our hearts, Lord. There's so much to it. There's so much we get to explore, so much that your Spirit can take and work even further than what we've discussed, and we're just so grateful that you're willing to do it to make us more like you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.